tonight. At this global event, this universal stage, whose storied past is rivaled only by the promise of an even bigger future. Millions will watch from around the world, waiting, anticipating for that next breathtaking moment. The stage is set. The time is now. History is at hand. This is WrestleMania. My name is Sal, and I am your host of this nostalgic ride with the chapters of WrestleMania. Tonight on the show, we discuss what critics believe to be one of the worst WrestleManias of all time. It's WrestleMania 9, or as the tagline says, the biggest stars in the world are coming to Las Vegas. I, for one, do not believe WrestleMania 9 to be the worst of all time. But... I am prepared to journey into the past and relive the spectacle at Caesars Palace, known throughout the WWF at that time as the world's largest toga party. Before we get started, I would like to take a moment to thank my co-host from last episode, and that would be the one and only Jason Stewart. I had an absolute blast discussing WrestleMania 8, and I hope to have him on again in a future episode. If you have not done so already, Check out Jason's sit-down interview with independent wrestler The Big Bacon, Brad Hollister. In fact, subscribe to the Rundown feed and listen to all of the Rundown sit-down episodes featuring Jason interviewing some amazing independent talent. Now, for episode 8, I was fortunate enough to have a co-host. I was fortunate enough to have a co-host for WrestleMania 7 as well. However, when I cast my fishing line for WrestleMania 9... I may have scared all of the fish out of the water. That's okay. We're going to go through it together. I'll tell you what I liked. I'll tell you what I hated. And we'll figure out together if this WrestleMania was indeed a dud. Let's go to the tail of the tape, shall we? WrestleMania 9, live from the outdoor venue at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas. The date, April 4th, 1993. The attendance back down to 16,891. In fact, WrestleMania 8, the Hoosier Dome, was the last time they were in the Dome for almost 10 years. We're back to small arenas, although I wouldn't consider Madison Square Garden next year a small arena. I think that's pretty world-renowned. However, I enjoy the visual of WrestleMania 9 being outside. I did talk with Jason last time about things that aesthetically look different in wrestling. And I believe that this was a nice look for 1993. We had yet to see anything outside. And all the pageantry that surrounded this, all the the glitz and glamour of the of the Caesar's Palace and and all the Roman Coliseums. I thought it played off really nice. Now this WrestleMania begins a little bit different than what we're used to. At least on the network. There is no WrestleMania song. But Screaming Vinny instead throws us to our host for the evening. The one and only Toga Sporting. 
Gorilla Monsoon. Now, you may be thinking, well, gee, Gorilla Monsoon's been the lead play-by-play guy for all of the WrestleManias thus far. Why would he not be there tonight behind the booth? Well, Gorilla Monsoon instantly introduces us to the reason why he's not our lead play-by-play guy. And that man is the one and only good old JR, Jim Ross. Now, I am a fan of Jim Ross, especially his earlier work. And I think this WrestleMania, he does a nice job of showing us why Vince brought him in and why he debuted him at such a big stage. Uh, His play-by-play is unparalleled. And he really gets that emotion going, even... You know, at different points throughout the night that there's really nothing else there. Uh, Jim Ross does a good job of drawing it out. Now, for those who don't know, for many years prior to 1993, Jim Ross was the lead play-by-play man for WCW. But when Eric Bischoff was promoted to executive producer in WCW in 1993, Ross demanded his release. Yeah, him and Bischoff didn't get along too well. Uh, Bischoff claims that Ross was a bully that liked to throw his weight around, uh, proverbially speaking. Uh, I don't tend to believe that. I think that Eric Bischoff was probably a piece of shit even back then. And I don't blame Jim Ross for demanding his release. And we're glad to have him with the WWF. Ross was hired by the World Wrestling Federation and made his on-screen debut tonight at WrestleMania 9. Uh, he also took over for Grill Monsoon on WWF Wrestling Challenge the following weekend. Ross worked alongside Bobby Heenan, which many people may have forgotten, all the way throughout the rest of 1993 until Heenan left at the end of the year. Jim Ross introduces himself to the WWF audience and throws us to our ring announcer for the evening, Finkus Maximus. I, for one, appreciate the fact that they gave Fink a colorful Roman name for the event. Uh, Fink, also in a toga, introduces us to, quote-unquote, Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, who ride into the arena on a very large but very trained elephant. Now, this is a sight to see as a giant elephant makes its way down the aisleway with fans on both sides. And I'm just like, I understand it's Vegas. Mind you, this was prior to the uh, Siegfried and Roy accident that would happen a few years later. But um, I would be nervous if I was sitting in an aisle seat and a giant elephant, you know, stomped by me and started doing tricks. But anyway, the elephant doesn't kill anybody, thank God. Caesar proclaims this to be WrestleMania 9. Uh, Fink introduces us to Jim Ross's partners for the evening, the first one being the Macho Man Randy Savage. It is a little bit surprising to see Randy Savage in a commentary role for this WrestleMania. This man was a WWF champion and... WrestleMania 8 was not his final WrestleMania match. So to see Randy Savage relegated to commentary, uh, I think is a miss. 
I think you could have found something better for him in the ring. But I know Vince had his vision of what he wanted to do with his uh, new WWF. And uh, obviously this WrestleMania proves he wanted to focus on the young stars. Sure, let's let's go with that. Uh, Ross is very confused when Savage comes out because Savage comes out on a caravan carried by uh, a bunch of jacked indie guys and being led to the ring by Vestal Virgins that are feeding Randy Savage grapes. Now, Ross is confused because he thought Bobby Heenan was supposed to be coming out with the Vestal Virgins. Uh, but instead, Heenan hilariously comes out on a camel, uh, which he looks like he wants no part of. And, uh, to make it even better, he's on the camel riding it backwards, which is hilarious. When the camel sits down at ringside, and Bobby Heenan tries to get off the camel, uh, he hilariously pretty much sticks his butt at the camera, and his toga goes up. And Savage makes fun of him, and it is a pretty funny visual. And I thought Bobby Heenan played it off very, very nicely. Uh, he's upset, though. He's so upset that he got stuck with the camel. But it does make for a funny moment to start this WrestleMania off with. Now, we don't get the token guest celebrity singing America the Beautiful, which is a bit strange. Uh, apparently, they did have actress Diane Carroll sing it. They just didn't air it on the broadcast. And I don't think that's a network thing. The way this WrestleMania started, there was no place for them to cut that out. So, whatever. Uh, we don't get to see America the Beautiful. Um, I don't think that lasts. I'm pretty sure the next year we're right back to having that at the beginning of the show. Our opening match for the evening is an intercontinental title match. Champion Shawn Michaels with his newest ring manager Luna Vachon because when I think of Shawn Michaels I think of Luna Vachon will be taking on Tataka and accompanying Tataka to the ring tonight is Sensational Sherry who just for anybody who needs a history lesson uh, broke up with Shawn after Shawn uh, allowed Janetti to hit her in the face with a mirror few months back. I say aloud uh, in a very nice way. Uh, the correct way is that when Janetti went to hit Sean with the mirror, uh, Sean threw Sherry in front of the mirror. So she got cracked. And ever since then, Sherry has been on a mission to avenge, or to get revenge, rather, against Shawn Michaels. So... For that reason, she's coming out to the ring with Tatanka tonight. I feel like this is the second WrestleMania in a row we were supposed to get Michaels and Janetti, but, you know, drugs. Uh, also, it's interesting to note that this is probably the fourth or fifth time in WrestleMania history that Sean is in the opening match. And I believe it might be the last time. Because Mr. WrestleMania don't do curtain jerking. Anyway, during this match... Jim Ross proves he is an excellent play-by-play -play man. Like I said earlier, he brings the tempo up when it needs to be brought up. He brings the emotion into it. And his, um, you know, his Oklahoma-style good old boy from Oklahoma, it, it is a nice, uh, it's like a breath of fresh air. It, it's really nice. 
Um, he seems like naive, especially compared to Bobby Heenan and Randy Savage. And, um, you know, I think that plays off well. I think that makes him a really good babyface commentator. One thing I noticed during this match, and I did enjoy this match, but Michael sells his ass off during this match. Um, you know, typical Shawn Michaels slightly overselling, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought the match was really well-paced, and I thought we got a nice dynamic that every time Luna thought she would maybe interfere, Sherry was right there to make sure she did it. Now, I know that at this point in 1993, Randy Savage has been doing color commentary for a number of years. I mean, you can go all the way back to right after WrestleMania 7, when he was quote-unquote retired and doing color commentary on you know, WWF Superstars or Challenge or whatever it was. So I know he's got a history doing it. Uh, but for whatever reason tonight, he's just not good. He's just not good. I don't know, because maybe it's a three-man booth, and he doesn't know where he should, like, jump in. But you can only hear Randy Savage say, He's doing the thing! Yeah! So many times before it starts to really get annoying. And uh, I think it kind of hindered Ross and Heenan, who I thought still had a great performance tonight, but, I don't know, Savage just felt really out of place. During the match, though, we get a great exchange where Tatanka mounts a pretty good comeback, and Michaels is able to briefly get the advantage and sends Tatanka over the top rope to the outside. Michaels goes on the apron and tries for a flying crossbody, but he completely misses and pretty much just eats the concrete. Now, this is where shit gets really fucked up. Uh, Michaels stands up and grabs referee Jordan Rella's foot and drags him out of the ring. So, instant DQ, right? Well, Sean goes back in the ring, and he immediately gets hit with Tatanka's finisher, which is like a Samoan drop. And then Morella gets back in the ring, but he won't count, and he waves it off, and then he calls for the bell. So again, DQ, because Michaels put his hands on the official, right? Uh, nope. Howard Fink, or I'm sorry, Finkus Maximus, announces that the Taka is the winner by countout? So apparently Michaels grabbed the referee's foot to try to avoid being counted out because he was approaching 10. Um, but apparently the ref got to 10 and Michaels pulled him out only before the ref could single signal for the bell. So for some reason, you know, Shawn Michaels has been counted out. Now, I went back and watched it, and I gotta be honest with you, I don't think he was out there for 10 seconds. You know, unless you're doing the video game count out of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you're out. <laughs> So your winner in this opening contest, which again was a good match, not really a great ending, Tatanka. Now, things get really interesting after the match, because as Tatanka's celebrating, Sean leaves the ring. He leaves the ringside area. Sherry's clapping for Tatanka. Luna's still ringside. She grabs Sherry's ankle, tosses her down from the apron to the floor, and then clotheslines the shit out of Sherry. I'm talking JBL clothesline from Hellstyle. She then starts putting the boots to Sherry, and then Tatanka kind of runs her off, and then he helps Sherry to the back. But this eventually will lead to a small feud between the two, which encompasses Tatanka's feud 
with Bam Bam Bigelow as Luna moves on to become Bam Bam Bigelow's main squeeze. So I think throughout the summer of 93, they do a lot of Sherry and Tatanka versus Bam Bam and Luna. Uh, Shocker, I think this is the only time that Luna manages Sean, especially on pay-per-view. So that relationship didn't last long. And you can tell... I mean, those two didn't look right together. It just made no sense. Other than they're both probably having an infatuation with leather at the time. But whatever. Uh, Shawn Michaels would be given other managers and uh, we'll call them cornermen sooner rather than later. Now, next up, a special treat here is Mean Gene is with Scott Steiner. Scotty Steiner, who cuts an interesting promo. You know, Gene, me and my brother are very excited about wrestling our first WrestleMania. But head shrinkers, I got a message for you guys. This might be our first WrestleMania, but it'll be one to be remembered. Hmm. Sounds like Steiner's having issues with numbers again. But then you take my 75% chance of winning. If we used to go one-on-one and then add 66 and two-thirds percent. I got 141 and two-thirds chance of winning. Moving on, match number two. The Steiner Brothers. Rick and Scott Steiner versus the Head Shrinkers with their manager, Arthur. Now, the first thing I notice when this match begins, or when actually prior to the match beginning, but just when the Steiners are coming down the aisle, is uh, the referee, who happens to be one Bill Alfonso. Thank God he doesn't have a whistle on him. Because that would be annoying if he was doing that stick the whole night. Now, the head shrinkers are made up of Samo and Fatu. Or as he would later be known, Rikishi Fatu. That's right. The father of the current SmackDown Live Tag Team Champions, Jimmy and Jey Uso. Now, the head shrinkers, however, are portrayed in a much more primitive manner than the Usos ever were, uh, to their point where their entrance attire consists of straw tassels hanging off their knee pads and large bamboo walking sticks. Now, you may think, is this racist? But, I gotta tell you, at this point, you know, from the mid-80s to the mid-90s, this was the prototypical Samoan gimmick. I mean, even their manager, Afa, this is almost a carbon copy of what he did with the Wild Samoans, which was another tag team in the early 80s. Again, a very similar style where they are savages, they are aborigines, whatever they are, and um, they usually have some type of manager who acts as their mouthpiece. It's a formula that's been around in wrestling for a long time, and if you don't believe me, go look up Umaga. And that was in 2006. Now, we do get a historic moment at the beginning of this match, though. Uh, Jim Ross introduces the WWF to what would become a trademark. A trademark catchphrase in his legacy. Back in Oklahoma, Bobby would talk match like this, a slobber knocker. I thought that's what they call the waitress at the Tip Top Cafe in downtown Tulsa. See, you thought wrong again, even yeah. didn't you? A slobber knocker? That's right. Because it's going to be physical. Smash mouth wrestling. The head shrinker's Smash, smash, smash. How would you like to say that? 
Now I'm just going to throw this out there. Clearly, the Steiners in their colorful singlets are something we've never seen again in the history of the WWF. I mean, especially not from future tag teams that are suplex-based. I mean, come on. That would be such a hack job if anybody came out after the Steiners wearing colorful singlets and doing suplexes. I mean, whoever, who would ever do that, right? Uh, other thing I notice here is that Scotty is really jacked at this point, even for 1993. He's not on the gas, but he is a big boy, which is funny because I always thought, like, you know, revisionist history style, that, like, Scotty was, like, a lot skinnier when he was with the WWF back in the early 90s. Uh, no, man, he's pretty fucking big. He's not, obviously, he's not big Papa Pump big, but... He's well on his way there, and we're only in 1993. Must be on that Lex Luger supplement diet. Uh, This is a really great match. Um, I really enjoyed this match. Really good tag team wrestling. Uh, We got a nice spot early on where the Steiners hit a double flying clothesline on the head shrinkers. But the, the caveat is that Rick and Scott come off of the same turnbuckle which I thought was really nice. I hadn't seen that to that point. During the match, as the head shrinkers are getting some nice heat on Scott Steiner, Jim Ross gets word in his ear that Luna has attacked Sherry backstage at the first aid station with more information as it becomes available. Spoiler, I don't think we hear about it again for the rest of the night. You know what would have been great? How about a camera backstage that shows us Luna attacking Sherry? I mean, I'm just saying... Now, this match, like I said, really good, hard, physical match. Um, At one point, Samu sets up, or he catches uh, Scotty for like a stun gun, but takes him all the way up and over the top rope, and Scotty lands hard. I was like, oof, that was a rough bump. But to make things, you know, just so you're not going to think about it that long, uh, as soon as he lands... And the referee's distracted with Rick. Uh, Alpha comes over and cracks Scotty in the head with one of those giant bamboo sticks. That's pretty vicious. Especially for 1993. If we learned anything from old school wrestling, is that you don't attack a Samoan's head. And that concept is brought up in this match frequently. Scotty tries... To make a comeback, and what's the first thing he did? He does. He slams Fatu's head into the corn, into the turnbuckle. Well, guess what? It has no fucking effect. So, so you think he would stop doing it from that point, right? Uh, eventually, Scotty does finally make the hot tag, and Rick gets a pretty good pop when he gets in there. But again, Rick falls into the same trap within a matter of seconds, where he takes Samu and Fatu's head and tries to. You know, crush them together. They instantly no-sell it, and then they hit Rick with a double headbutt. So, the fuck? Does nobody understand that you can't work a Samoan's head in the early 90s? It's not going to work. At one, Now, this is an interesting spot, because Scott, uh, Rick, rather, uh, after getting hit with the double headbutt, starts getting double teamed, and he gets put up on Sam Moo's shoulders, and Fatu goes to the top rope, which looks, it looks like he's going to do a doomsday device. I was like, that's, 
that's interesting. But instead, Rick catches him coming off the top, and while he's still sitting on Samu's shoulders, power slams Fatu in midair to the canvas. Oof. Really nice spot. I, I really appreciated that. I went back and watched it a couple times. I thought it was awesome. Eventually, Scotty catches Samu off the ropes with a Frankensteiner. Samu really fucks up the timing so that Scotty does his, like, Hurricanrana, you know, positioning. And then, like, three seconds later, Samu flips forward. One of those things that probably should have flipped forward a couple seconds beforehand because it looked a little bit awkward. Nevertheless, Scotty picks up the pin, and your winners are the Steiner Brothers. Great match. Great match. I forgot how much I enjoyed the Steiners in the early 90s. Let's not talk about later on, but definitely the early 90s. Uh, Now, match number three, Doink the Clown versus Crush. And this is not just any doink. Uh, Video footage shows us this is evil doink. Gene Oakland takes us back to take a look at video footage from a recent episode of Monday Night Raw, the WWF's new primetime television show in 1993. What a dumb name, Monday Night Raw. That's never going to stick. I can't imagine a show like that will ever get over. Now, in this segment, Doink has his arm in a sling, and he's trying to avoid a fight with Crush. And the minute Crush turns his back, Doink takes his arm out of the sling, takes his arm off his body, and cracks Crush in the head with it. Yes, that's right, folks. Doink had a fake prosthetic arm and used it to level Crush in the back of the head and then beat him senseless with the arm, which I thought was pretty funny. And, of course, Vince McMahon, who was the commentator on Raw at the time, hilariously starts selling this as, Oh, my God, Doink just ripped his own arm out of the socket. I thought was a nice touch. Matt Bourne, I feel, is really underrated in his role as Doink, especially when he was a heel, because he just does these certain little things, these little nuances, and he really comes across like a fucking psychotic bastard. And apparently, it's working. Because as Doink comes to the ring, there are tons of signs that you see in the crowd that says, kill the clown, and uh, Doink is a real pineapple head, obviously playing off a of Crush's Hawaiian character. But you know what? I don't think Matt Bourne gets enough credit for his heel work as Doink. I really don't. Doink, by the way, before he comes out to the ring, warns Gene Oakland that after WrestleMania 9, he guarantees that Crush will be seeing double vision. Hmm. Crush, former member of Demolition, yes, that Crush, at this point in 1993, he has a new Hawaiian gimmick where he's a corner crush. Um, and he's very, very blonde and, and his ring gear is very, very orange, purple, and yellow. So imagine that combination. He does start off pretty hot and heavy, though. Uh, And he starts beating the crap out of Doink. And I mean from pillar to post. Doink tries to escape Crush constantly. He tries to, like, go under the ring. But Crush keeps grabbing him and pulling him back. At one point, Doink gets uh, a little bit of the advantage. 
and starts, you know, kind of working on Crush. But Crush regains it pretty quickly and locks him in Crush's finishing move, which is a head vice, but at the time was called the Cranium Crunch. Doink flails around as soon as he gets put in it and gets the rope. So the referee tries to break it up. And Doink is trying to struggle to get out of the move. And Crush won't let go of the move. And they both kind of like toss the referee down. So the referee's out. Uh, This at least allows Doink to get outside the ring. Doink again tries to go under the ring. But Crush drags him back in. Brings him back in the ring. And applies the Cranium Crunch again. This time in the center. But lo and behold, there's no referee. And then all of a sudden... And what I was shocked to see when I watched this back when I was a kid, uh, another doink comes from under the ring on the opposite side and nails Crush with that same prosthetic arm that they used on Raw. And then both doinks beat the piss out of Crush. They After they, they're done putting the beating on Crush, they both look at each other and play like a mirror game and then laugh at the dismay of the crowd. The second doink goes back under the ring, and the original doink pins Crush as the referee starts to come around. I thought this was brilliant. <laughs> I, this, how can there be two doinks? I thought this was hilarious. I still think it's pretty funny. It was the original twin magic. It was twin clown magic. Here's the best part. So after the match, doink number two goes back under the ring... And doink number one leaves and, and, you know, is quick to get out of there as another referee comes running down, Bill Alfonso again. And he's like, no, no, no. And he's trying to tell the referee that there's another doink under the ring. And when they go to look under the ring, they can't find him. They can't find the other doink. He has vanished. And at this point, so has any reason left to continue watching this pay-per-view. First three matches we just discussed were in the first hour of WrestleMania 9. And I feel that as soon as these three matches were over, WrestleMania 9 really starts to go to shit. It really does. But we're going to go through it. We're going to go through it and find out what went wrong. Well, let's start off with... Um, the newest correspondent who we get thrown to by Jim Ross, who is in the crowd asking people, was there really two doings or was it an illusion? Who is that man? Who is that correspondent that Jim Ross throws us to? Ladies and gentlemen, it's Todd Penningale. Penningale decides to try to interview two Japanese photographers and try to get their opinion on Doink. They, of course, in a similar spot that they did a couple WrestleManias ago, uh, have no idea what he's saying until Penningale says, Yokozuna, and they're like, oh yeah, Yokozuna, number one. Uh, Yes, this, this segment is definitely racist, and the worst part is it's a repeat. Like I said, they did the exact same thing, I think it was at six or seven. Uh, oh, it was seven. It was seven because uh, uh, Henry Hugefax was on the episode with me, and we discussed that. That is just 
would just throw out Japanese words, and they would be like, oh, yeah, Toyota, number one. This is pretty much the exact same segment. Uh, however, I will say that none of the Japanese photographers had any gold in their teeth. So still don't know what Bobby Heenan was talking about at WrestleMania. Our next match. Oh, boy. The bad guy, Razor Ramon. And I was a fan of Razor Ramon, mind you. Versus Bob Backlund. This was a fucking garbage match. I mean, I guess you gotta have some, right? So, first of all, this was before Razor's babyface turn. That didn't happen until the 1-2-3 kid beat him, and the 1-2-3 kid didn't beat him until probably about May of 93. So, Razor's the heel, and Backland is the face, and... If you're wondering, this was about a year and four months before Backlund snaps and locks Bret Hart in the chicken wing while screaming like a banshee. So at this point, Backlund is Mr. White Bread Babyface America's like jacket with red tights. It's the most annoying, uh, out-of-touch gimmick. I've seen in a long time, and to prove my point, he gets no reaction from the, well, has been a very loud Vegas crowd. He gets no reaction from them. Uh, To make things even worse, Razor beats Bob Backlund. Now, Razor Ramon, all six foot eight of them, okay, beats Bob Backlund with an inside cradle. Hmm. Thankfully, This match only lasted about three or four minutes. Your winner, by Inside Cradle, Razor Ramon. Now, backstage, Mean Gene Oakland is with the WWF Tag Team Champions. Oh yes, it's true. It's damn true. The Tag Team Champions, Money Incorporated, IRS, and Ted DiBiase. Now, this is one half of our not-announced double main event, where Money, Inc. will defend their tag team titles against the Mega Maniacs, Brutus the Barber Beefcake, and Hulk Hogan. Brutus Beefcake, mind you, is making his in-ring return after the parasailing accident, where, we, where he had, uh, like, multiple plates and screws inserted in his face. So it's really great to see Brutus back, but on the other hand, Jesus Christ, man. (laughs) Uh, From what I heard and from what you've said in different podcasts, um, you had a lot of surgeries on your face. So it's awesome to see that you did make it back to the ring, but at the same point in time, I can understand why everybody's so concerned about you taking a bump. Nobody wants your face to be smashed in like a million pieces on the ground. Uh, And to make sure of that, Brutus is wearing a metal protective mask for this match. Of course, painted red and yellow. But it it provides an interesting look for Brutus. I don't know. Uh, One thing I will say is that during the promo, IRS makes it a point to say that apparently Hulk Hogan had a little accident outside of the gym last night. Because, in IRS's words, that's what money can do! Insinuating that they hired people to beat Hogan up. And then 
I thought IRS had a great line here where he says, if you think Brutus Beefcake's face is bad, wait till you get a load of Hogan's. We go to the ring. Money ain't come out with the tag team titles. IRS, of course, has that beautiful Halliburton with him. The suitcase, the metal suitcase, this time painted gold for some reason. The Mega Maniacs are managed by Jimmy Hart. Jimmy Hart, who used to manage DiBiase and IRS, felt bad for Brutus when they were trying to beat him up and uh, stood up for Brutus and they tossed Jimmy Hart out of the ring. So now Jimmy Hart, who was a heel manager for the longest time, is now a babyface manager with Hogan and Beefcake. That's an interesting dynamic, I'll say that much. Um, Here's another interesting dynamic. Hogan walks out there, and his eye is fucking black. Not only does he have a black eye, and does he have four or five stitches above his eye, his actual eyeball is, like, black. And I'm sure it's not. It's probably just, like, cloudy. But holy fuck, that's an interesting visual. Uh, If you've never seen it, go look up Hulk Hogan Eye Injury 1993 or Hulk Hogan Eye Injury WrestleMania 9. It's a a doozy. Now, the storyline reason for the eye injury, as I mentioned, is that DBS and IRS hired guys to beat Hogan up. The real-life story is that Hogan was in a jet ski accident, which, you know... God knows how many days before WrestleMania that happens, but considering that you're teaming with a guy who almost lost his face in a motorboat accident, you really had to go jet skiing this week, Hulk? Really? And then there's another story, an internet legend, if you will, that Randy Savage punched him in the face the night before WrestleMania uh, because of rumors that he had slept with Liz while Savage was still married to her. I know, those are probably just rumors. Who knows, right? Also, one thing I noticed about Hogan in this match is physically he looks bad. Not like bad, like he's not in shape. Hulk Hogan is in shape, and I will say that. He's still in shape, but he is a lot skinnier than he was even two years ago against Sergeant Slaughter. I don't know if it's because he just stopped taking steroids, or if it's something else, but this... Hulk Hogan, and then the 1994 Hulk Hogan that shows up in WCW, like, it just isn't the Hulk Hogan that I grew up with. The Hulk Hogan I grew up with was 303 pounds with 24-inch pythons. The guy in the ring right now pretty much looks like if you took a pin to a cartoon and deflated all the muscles. That's what Hulk Hogan looks like. I mean, like I said, he's still in shape. It's just weird. Because he's not as big as he was. And again, I think that has something to do with not being on steroids. Uh, I also feel like he went right back on steroids a couple years later in the NWO, but that's for another day. So here's the thing with this match, okay? No, this is not going to be a rant. But uh, it was a pretty generic match. You know? Very, very generic tag team match. Very generic Hogan match. We get a we get a ha-ha spot when DiBiase tries to punch Brutus, but obviously Brutus is wearing the mask, so DiBiase actually hurts his hand trying to punch Brutus in the face. It's mildly funny. And then I thought this was a decent callback. Uh, Money, Inc. decides they've had enough of Hogan, they've had enough of Beefcake, 
and they go to leave the ring, and Howard Fink, Finkus Maximus, uh, gets on the stick, and he says, uh, the referee has informed me that if Money, Inc. do not return to the ring by the referee's ten count, not only will they lose the match, they will lose their WWF tag team titles. Bobby Heenan says exactly what I'm thinking. Who the fuck is he to make that decision? <laughs> it's true. Seriously, since when does a referee get to change the rules of a match? Unfucking believable They do make it back. Uh, they barely make it back, but they do. And then, you know, we, we get back into the match. DiBiase locks Hogan in the Million Dollar Dream right in the middle of the ring. And it looks like Hogan's going to pass out. But just as Steve Mongo McMichael would say, Hogan comes back. And he does. Um, but because it's a tag match, Hogan only comes back briefly, long enough to tag in Brutus Beefcake, who then starts getting the shit kicked out of him. So Brutus did all fuck nothing with that hot tag and put himself in danger as DiBiase rips the mask off of him. And DBS and IRS start putting the boots to Brutus's face. Now, Brutus finally hits a double clothesline on IRS and DBS, so that should allow him to make the tag, right? But instead, Beefcake decides to lock DBS in with a sleeper, which is weird because you would think, especially with the danger to his face, that he would, you know, try to tag out. But he doesn't, so he goes for the sleeper. DBS, he nails Brutus. I'm sorry, so D, uh, forgive me. Brutus had the sleeper on IRS. So DBS, he comes in the ring and nails Brutus from behind, and both Brutus and IRS pretty much fall on top of the ref. So he's out. He's out, and that's the second time tonight that the referee has been knocked out. So, you know... That that that's a little bit old and uh, lazy, and doing a one match. Please don't do it in another. Um, at this point, Beefcake tags Hulk Hogan. Hogan runs in, immediately hits DiBiase with a big boot, and then Irwin runs in, and Hogan kicks him right in the dick. <laughs> and Jr. tries to sell it as a uh, uh, lower lower abdomen. And Bobby Heenan's like, are you kidding me? He went bargain basement on that shot. <laughs> Absolutely true. There was no denying he kicked him right in the dick. Hogan then nails both men with the metal mask, the face mask. Uh, but there's obviously no ref to make the count. So Jimmy Hart runs in the ring, cleverly turns his jacket inside out, which on the inside of his jacket is revealed to be black and white stripes. And Jimmy Hart makes the count. One, two, three. Uh, obviously, this doesn't count. But they grab the tag team titles like they like they want something. And then a second referee comes down. And he immediately declares Money, Inc. the winner. Which I thought was a little strange. Why did he declare Money, Inc. the winner? Well, apparently, your winner by disqualification is money incorporated. So which was the disqualification? Was it was it Hogan nailing DiBiase with the mask? Is that what caused the disqualification? 
Or was it them grabbing the tag titles, even though they hadn't won it? Was that the disqualification? They never tell us. They never actually specify. And then we see that the referee who came down there and made this decision was none other than the nightmare Danny Davis. A man who has been very crooked at WrestleMania for a number of years now. Uh, Hogan and Beefcake threaten that they're going to beat up Danny Davis. Nobody wants to see them get fined or suspended. So instead, little tiny Jimmy Hart grabs Danny Davis and sends him flying head over tea kettle over the top rope. And then Hogan and Beefcake pose and celebrate like they fucking won something. Except for they didn't. Not only didn't they not win the titles, they didn't win the goddamn fucking match. So why would they be celebrating other than Hulk must pose, bro? But Hulk gets a chance to pose later, so I still don't know why they're celebrating right now. At one point, after a few poses and struts, because yes, they combine those two things, Hogan grabs the briefcase, because apparently IRS left it at ringside. Uh, Hogan goes to open it, and there's some tax forms in there, and there's also a brick. A brick in the briefcase. Well, apparently IRS is moonlighting as a bricklayer, because why else would he have a brick in the briefcase? Uh, Also stuffed in the briefcase is a wad of cash. Real cash. (laughs) Hilariously, Bobby Heenan makes a comment and says, "Uh, Hogan, give me the money. I'll make sure it gets back to TBIC and IRS, which I thought was gold. Uh, Hogan pulls an Andre a la WrestleMania 1, and him and Beefcake start handing out the cash to fans in the crowd. Uh, good on them, except for one problem. You're in Las Vegas, so that cash will probably last you about ten minutes tops. Also, the whole thing seemed pretty routine. I understand now that, uh, you know, in this podcast series, that's my job is to review WrestleMania as, in chronological order. But at this point, I have seen the Hogan shtick way too much way past his prime, and I don't really need to see it here. I don't get it, I don't like it, and I thought it came off as cheap. It's just, eh, just didn't do anything for me. Todd Pettingale tries to interview Natalie Cole, who's in the crowd, and she says she's having a great time, and then Todd Pettingale interviews the owner of Caesar's Palace, uh, who is some type of foreign billionaire uh, who goes on and on and on to talk about how great the WWF is and how awesome it is to have them here this week. And uh, the energy has never been uh, like this at Caesars, even though they've ho- hosted like 80 professional boxing championship fights or something stupid. Uh, the whole thing reeks of Trump at WrestleMania 4. Let's just, let's just put it that way. Also... Can't stand Todd Pentagale in this stupid fucking backwards hat. Just can't do it. Backwards hat and a toga. I just want to fucking slap him. But anyway. We go on to match number six. The Narcissist, Lex Luger, versus Mr. Perfect. Now, I'll give credit where credit is due. When Lex Luger comes out, he has one of the more elaborate entrances for this WrestleMania. Comes down to the ring... 
with four beautiful valets, dressed in Las Vegas' unofficial uniform, the gold thong bikini. Good for you, Lex. Now, in an attempt to make Luger true to his character, they all hold up mirrors so he can look at himself. And he poses to the hard cam. And the mirrors have these little, like, fireworks sparklers that shoot out of the top of it. Except for they're outside. So that shit dangerously starts spraying to one side. And I'm amazed that nobody's hairspray caught on fire. Considering it is 1993. Can you imagine if fucking one of the girls just ignited because of the stupid shit on top of the mirror? Oh, that'd be a lawsuit and a half. Anyway, throughout the entire match, in really, really annoying fashion, everybody wants to bring up Lex Luger's quote-unquote controversial forearm. See, apparently, earlier today, at the WrestleMania brunch, still not a real thing, Luger attacked Bret Hart and knocked him out cold with that forearm. And nobody knows why. Why he's able to knock people out cold with that forearm. In fact, Randy Savage said, Something's going on here with that forearm. Yeah, he had a steel plate inserted from his motorcycle accident. The fuck are you going to do about that? You guys act like it's a fucking pair of brass knucks that he put under his forearm skin. I mean, Jesus Christ. The level at which they go to try to figure out What's up with that forearm tonight is is annoying as all hell. Uh, specifically Savage, who just like, that's, that's enough, people are getting knocked out. Like, all right, dude, stop. Just stop. <laughs> After a decent back and change, but nothing, re- back and forth exchange, but nothing really spectacular, Luger ends up pinning perfect with a backslide. Yes, that's right. A fucking backslide gets a pinfall at WrestleMania, and it wasn't even a clean backslide because Perfect's feet were in the ropes the whole time, and the ref doesn't see it. Your winner, and thank God this match is over, Lex Luger, the narcissist. The I just ugh. Lex Luger, 1993. I don't know what's worse, Lex Luger in 1993 as the narcissist. Or Lex Luger in 1994 is the all-American made-in-USA Lex Express. Blah! Uh, afterwards, Perfect tries to plead his case to the ref, and while his back is turned, uh, Luger seizes the moment and knocks him out with the forearm. Perfect wakes up from La La Land and charges to the back, pissed off, looking to find Lex Luger. Lucky for us, the cameraman follows him to an outside area where Luger just happens to be standing around shooting the shit with Shawn Michaels. Which is funny, because he was just ringside. You would think he would want to go take a shower or something, but no. Just, you know, sitting around talking with Shawn. Perfect, of course, attacks Luger, to which Shawn responds by attacking Perfect. And Shawn then kicks the shit out of Mr. Perfect, throws him through garbage cans and the whole nine. So, good job, Mr. Perfect. Not only did you lose the match, not only did you get knocked out, then you got beat up by Shawn Michaels. Good good night for Mr. Perfect. Uh, when we get back to the commentator's booth, uh, the real fight begins, because Randy Savage gets all types of pissed off that Bobby Heenan is laughing at Mr. Perfect, and starts screaming at Bobby Heenan, and 
<laughs> Heenan tries to like is kind of cowering behind Ross, but he's still like saying stuff. And Ross is like, "Why are you putting me in the middle of this?" And it's actually pretty funny because I actually thought, uh, especially after everything that happened last year's WrestleMania, that uh, Savage was going to snatch up Heenan and just beat the bag out of him. Uh, also. This leads to a hilariously naive moment for JR. Right before the next match starts, he says to Bobby Heenan, uh, Bobby Heenan, why do you try to provoke Randy like that? (laughs) Jim Ross, you have no idea what you got yourself into. (laughs) Our next match of the night. God, this match. Match number seven. The Undertaker with Paul Bear versus the Giant Gonzalez with Harvey Whippleman. Now, this match in particular would have been a very nice match to have a video package that aired before the match started. For those of you that don't know, Giant Gonzalez debuted in the WWF two months, three months, whatever it was prior to this, at the Royal Rumble in 1993. He walked in the ring. He had no business. He was not a participant in the Rumble. He kicked the shit out of the Undertaker, and both of them fought to the back. That's how Gonzalez made his debut in the WWF. Do we get B-roll footage of that tonight? No. No. We fucking don't, which was dumb. By the way, speaking of dumb, I can't stand anything about the giant Gonzalez. I'm sure he's a very nice human being. Or he was, because he did pass away, God rest his soul. But his music is awful. His uh, facial expressions are awful. And his fucking hairy bodysuit. Are you kidding me? This stupid fucking suit that includes spray-painted muscular butt cheeks and the spray-painted pubes on the front of it. And the way they spray-painted it this year... Or this event makes him look like John fucking Bobbitt. What the fuck? Like, who thought that was a good idea? I just don't. Why? Why is that a good idea? I don't get it. And I don't care. Maybe he did. Maybe he did something similar in WCW. It was stupid there too. All right. This is the worst fucking wrestling attire in the world. And this goddamn guy's eight feet tall. Now, we're gonna talk about entrances. We do need to talk about the Undertakers. Because I thought The Undertaker's entrance was fantastic. Um, He comes out on a funeral chariot. Pulled by two friggin', uh, you know, local jobbers. And Paul Bear's also coming down, uh, walking next to the funeral chariot, which kind of shows where he lies. And The Undertaker has a huge vulture just perched next to him. It's a great visual. Uh, I will agree that Undertaker matches during the day just look weird. So, as much as I loved the spectacle of the chariot and the vulture, it definitely would have been a shitload more better at night. But, you know, it's kind of the problem when you are in an outdoor venue on the West Coast. Because you're starting at like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So, in some cases, 4. So, there's not really much they can do. Um, you know, I know they're not going to just cancel his match because they're in an outdoor venue, but definitely something that's, uh, you know, an interesting dynamic with the Undertaker carry, uh, character that his entrance does not work as well in the daylight. 
Just saying. Now, other than the entrances, this match was shit. It was fucking garbage. I'd love to sit here and tell you that, um, you know, Taker's agile and and he worked himself around Gonzalez and and they had a decent showing for two big men. Uh, But I can't tell you that. Okay? Let's get one thing straight. Just because you are eight feet tall doesn't mean you have any business in a wrestling ring. I'm looking at you, Greg Kelly. Okay? Giant Gonzalez can't wrestle. He can't work. He can't run. He can't take any of Taker's offense. He can barely fucking walk. I'm not even kidding. He can barely fucking walk. And as bad as the match was, I can deal with that. I've seen matches before with big, big, you know, plotting big men that don't uh, move that well in the ring, or maybe they don't sell, or maybe they don't uh, have the facial expressions down, and I can I can get past all that. But whoever booked the finish for this match should be fucking fired, because in 1993 we're going to insinuate. That the giant Gonzalez stuck a chloroform-soaked towel over the Undertaker's face for more than a minute. And that was the plan all along? Uh, Man, that's a hard sell. It really is. Now, for those of you who don't know, I will give you the story of how how we got to this point. Gonzalez is desperately trying to beat The Undertaker during the match with a reverse chin lock. That's right, Jason. He tried. He didn't succeed. But he was literally digging into a reverse chin lock and, like, trying to get The Undertaker to submit with it, which is a little bit awkward because, again, who the fuck gives up to a reverse chin lock? No matter what Gonzalez does to Taker, Taker keeps coming back. Taker cuts down the big man. And gets him down to one knee after a few good clotheslines and um, uh, a bunch of, you know, good strikes. And as soon as Giant Gonzalez goes down to one knee, Harvey Whippleman jumps up on the ring apron. Now, this is pretty fucking awful because Harvey Whippleman tosses a cloth to Gonzalez. Gonzalez puts it over Undertaker's face. And instead of disqualifying him, because the announcers make it perfectly clear that they can smell the chloroform that's permeating throughout the arena, um, instead of disqualifying him, referee Bill Alfonso starts giving him a standing five count. And then he disqualifies him after Gonzalez won't, you know, remove the cloth. So let me get this straight. By that logic, I can take chloroform, I can put it on you know, a cloth, I can I can suffocate and smother somebody with it, and as long as I break by five, we're good. Right? Wow. I know how I'm going to become WWF champion. <laughs> so, the chloroform-soaked towel does such a number on The Undertaker that they have to carry him out on a stretcher. And only about ten seconds after the stretcher leaves the ringside area... Uh, we get a gong. Gong goes off. Taker charges to the ring like nothing happened. 
and he clotheslines Gonzalez out of the ring. And security escorts Gonzalez to the back. Paul Bear, who also got a face full of cloth, uh, is fine now. Even though when the cloth hit his face, uh, he, he acted like a gun just went off. Like he just instantly dropped to the floor. Uh, but apparently he's fine now. And I can get them wanting to extend the feud. I totally get that. Like, you know, try to get as many matches out of it as you can. And they did. They did have another match at SummerSlam. But, again, the guy can't work. So extending the feud doesn't really serve a purpose. And then, on top of that, there are a thousand different ways to get there. Not a chloroform-soaked towel. Just saying. You could have used a wrench. You could have used the ring bell. You could have used a steel chair. There are a million ways to get where you were going. But I do not like the way they chose. And I think it it's one of the least recognized victories The Undertaker has in his WrestleMania uh, record because it was a fucking DQ win. He didn't pin him. He didn't make him submit. And I understand the streak wasn't a thing in 1993, but it was a thing in 2014, 15, 16, what have you, or, you know, prior to Brock beating him. I'm sorry, I didn't mean 15 and 16, but, you know, you know what I mean. And while it was a thing, as many times as they brag about who's taker who takers beat in that streak, they don't bring up Giant Gonzalez. Because not only of who he was, but how he beat them. It just looks cheap. I don't think you get any benefit from the babyface winning by DQ, especially a babyface that's six foot ten, three hundred and twenty eight pounds. That's it. That's the last thing I'm gonna say on it. And if that wasn't bad enough, we now go Backstage to Gene Oakland, who's here to show us some footage from the feud that has developed between WWF champion Bret Hart and Yokozuna. We see Yokozuna beat the shit out of Hacksaw Jim Duggan and put him in the hospital. And then, during the contract signing, we see Yokozuna beat up Bret Hart as well. Now, backstage, Gene Oakland is with the WWF champion, Brett the Hit. No, no, never mind. Okay, he's not with the WWF champion. He's with Mr. Backstage Politics himself, Hulk Hogan. Wow, Hulk Hogan. What do you have to say about this? And as I looked into Bret Hart's eyes, I even questioned Hulkamania's own greatness. That's why right now, Bret Hart, I'm issuing a challenge to either you or the Jap, brother. Jesus Christ. He's not even Japanese. Not that that makes it any better. I'm just saying. Yokozuna is Samoan. He's not even Japanese. <sighs> so, let's make this shit show worse. And let's go back to the raid side area where Todd Penningale tries to interview fans before the main event. Uh, he tries to talk to a little kid who wants no re- nothing to do with Penningale and will not talk to him. So then he starts talking to these two drunk frat boys from Southern California who are dumb 
and who are wearing togas and think that they're cool, but they're really not. So I'm so glad that we get Todd Pentagill doing this shtick at WrestleMania 9. It, it's really riveting. Hanging on every last word. Brett gets a pretty good face pop when he comes out, which makes what happens at the end of the night even worse, but we'll get there. Uh, Brett does what he always does in this match. He, he finds a way to showcase his opponent's strengths while camouflaging their weaknesses. That's something that Brett has always done better than anybody, I believe. I really believe that to be true. And he does that with Yoko in this match. Now, this match doesn't last long, but for a nine-minute match, Hart did a decent job of playing the babyface fighting uphill against Yoko's mammoth size. At one point, Brett, in an attempt to not get spine-bustered by Yokozuna, rips the turnbuckle pad off of the corner. Uh, and then, when Yoko goes to drive his head into the turnbuckle, Hart reverses it and drives Yoko headfirst into the turn into the exposed turnbuckle. Now, this cause this causes Yoko to fall back and then land flat in his stomach. Now, while he's on his stomach, Brett grapes finds his legs and somehow makeshift gets him in the sharpshooter. Which is interesting, because at that point, we had not seen Brett apply to somebody without turning them over. And he does it on this occasion while Yokozuna's on his stomach. I thought that was a really nice touch. Now, no sooner does Brett lock Yoko in the, in the sharpshooter that Mr. Fuji reaches in, into his kimono, puts something in his hand, and then in a throwback to what Fuji used to do many, many years ago, takes a fistful of salt, and throws it right into Bret Hart's eyes. Immediately, Hart goes down, and immediately even more. Yokozuna runs, land, and not even splashes him, just covers him, just puts that 500-pound frame across him and hooks the leg. One, two, three. Your winner and new WWF champion, Yokozuna. Now, Yokozuna's music starts playing in not two seconds. Not two goddamn seconds after his music starts playing. Hulk Hogan is already in the ring trying to check on Bret Hart as well as complain to the referee that Yoko used the salt. Jesus Christ, Hulk. You couldn't have waited like at least ten seconds. You were literally right there as soon as the bell rang. Uh, Mr. Fuji, ever the opportunist, uh, challenges Hulk Hogan to a match. Him and his Yokozuna challenge Hulk Hogan to a match. And if if Hulk Hogan has any intestinal fortitude, he'll accept uh, Fuji's challenge. Hogan has no interest. He tries to leave with Brett. He tries to get Brett some medical attention. So Fuji grabs the mic and says he'll sweeten the pot. He will put the WWF title on the line. Now, this gets Hogan's attention, and Brett tells Hogan to go for it, brother. Crowd pops, and I will give them credit for this. Crowd did react, obviously, it's Hogan. So Hogan gets back in the ring, and he's immediately grabbed by Yoko, so Fuji can throw salt into Hogan's eyes. Mind you, they never ring the bell to start the match. Stay with me on this. Hogan ducks, 
Yoko gets all the salt in his eyes. Hogan dispatches of Mr. Fuji. Clothesline Yoko hits the leg drop. Earl Hebner counts the three. And we get, again, for the second time tonight, a new WWF champion. They never rang the bell to stop the match, but they damn sure rang the bell to finish it. (sighs) Now... I get it that almost every single WrestleMania that I've covered to this point ends with Hulk Hogan celebrating. Save for WrestleMania 6. That's the only one he took. He, you know, he wasn't celebrating in the ring to end the night. And no, I haven't forgotten about WrestleMania 4. But Hulk Hogan made Randy Savage's moment at WrestleMania 4 more about himself than about Randy Savage. Let's be honest here. The only person in the past... 10 years that was able that was allowed to get his own spotlight was Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania in Hogan with Hogan. That's it. No one else even comes close. What makes this whole situation more infuriating in hindsight is that there have been so many rumors over the years, and I think this one is pretty is pretty close to true as you could believe, that they were gonna do a mega match of Hogan versus Brett at SummerSlam since Brett got screwed out of the title and you know, Hogan didn't beat Brett to become champion and they were going to do Brett versus Hogan, but supposedly if you believe Brett Hart, Hulk didn't want to do it. So instead he dropped the title to Yokozuna King of the Ring that same year and then was gone from the company. So first of all, you bury your young talent when you don't have Brett uh, cleanly beat Yokozuna. Especially to... And if you're going to give Yokozuna a long title run, which you eventually do, uh, there's no reason for him to job that belt back to Hulk Hogan right here. There's that, no, that's fucking awful. And it just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I just didn't like... And not only that, when Hogan came out for the tag match, he was wearing his classic yellow trunks or yellow boots. And at this point, he comes out there with, like, red tights and a red tank top that he does not tear off. That's right. Hulk Hogan won the goddamn title with a shirt on. Because that's ever happened before. We get the Hulk must pose moment, although at this point I don't give a shit about it. And then, you know, we eventually go off the air. And I say eventually because Bobby Heenan was screaming and beside himself and he didn't understand how Hulk Hogan was the WWF champion. And you know what, Brain? I agree with you. Uh, The whole night for me... Was this the worst WrestleMania? No. No, no, no. I think there's going to be far worse. Uh, And there's some interesting candidates that I think is going to make the worst list. But I'm going to give my feelings on this match in a way that I know that Bret Hart would appreciate. And I'm going to say, this WrestleMania gets a 4 out of 10. (laughs) That's my opinion on it. And that might be generous. But not the worst, but definitely uh, a lot of misses. And I'm not talking about physically. Just a lot of misses in the storylines, a lot of misses in the finish. And, uh, just, you know, no, Hulk Hogan leaving with the WWF title. I mean, Jesus Christ, that's the equivalent of, you know, Finn Balor versus Samoa Joe, and then all of a sudden, 
after the match, John Cena shows up and, and he beats Joe and walks out of champ. I don't think anybody would really appreciate that. On a positive note, the match of the night for me was the Steiner Brothers versus the Head Shrinkers. I, I loved that match. I thought it was great. Uh, worst match of the night for me was Undertaker versus Giant Gonzalez. Please don't put a man in the ring with the Undertaker that can't go. It gets awkward as fuck. However, I did have a lot of fun doing this episode because I always have fun going back in the past and watching wrestling. Join us next time for a significant upgrade as we review WrestleMania 10. I say we because as revealed on last week's episode of Nitromania, I will once again find myself with a co-host and this time it is Nitromania's own Adam. Adam himself founder of the rundown will grace wrestling and salvation with his presence and i gotta say i'm looking forward to it follow us on twitter at wrestling sal follow henry Huchbex at raw attitude pod and follow the flagship the rundown wrestling podcast at rundown podcast Make sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Questionable Endeavor Network, including the Slasher Sanitarium, and give them a follow at Slasher Podcast. When you subscribe to the Rundown feed, not only do you get the Rundown proper, but you also get access to Nitromania, the Rundown Sit-Down, Glow Stick, NXT Revisited, and of course, WrestleMania Salvation. Until next time, everybody, goodbye and good 